Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This morning, I want you to know uh, we are in Genesis chapter 40, verses, or chapters 40 and 41. And we have been looking at Joseph as a type of Christ. And so we opened our service this morning and we said, hey, we want to retell the story of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And we're just going to kind of zero in on one aspect of that story from Genesis 40 and 41 as seeing Joseph as a type of Christ. I have a theory here this morning. All right. Ready for this? This is Jason Bradshaw's World of Wisdom, right? Social media gave everyone in the world a megaphone. That's my theory. Just imagine the chaos if you came home to your household with your children and you brought everyone in your household a megaphone. And he said, if you want to be heard, just use your megaphone. Just talk louder than everyone else around you. See, what we did with social media is we handed everyone in the world a megaphone. And what happened is it led to the ensuing consequence of that. Now we have to bear with the problems that are brought to our attention. We deal with all the immaturity. We see every meal some of you eat. I mean, it's crazy, right? We deal with all of the problems of social media. We gave everyone a megaphone. See, the truth is this morning that social media, our world right now, has given everyone a platform, whether good or bad. And what has happened with that is this world of self-promotion, of endless selfing. We do the thing, don't we? We, we take out our phones and we take that picture of ourselves. We call it a selfie. We talk about our day. We talk about us, me, me, I, I, we, we, us. What it does is it just crowds our sin-soaked heart even more, doesn't it? By contrast, what we'll see this morning is that Jesus was exalted so that you and I, as we're made new in Christ, can embrace true humility. As Jesus Christ sits on his throne and ruling and reigning over all of his creation, you and I don't have to I, 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 me, 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 we, we, we. We don't have to do those things. What we can do now as we're made new in Christ is wrap our arms around this concept of humility. And so our big idea this morning is that Jesus was exalted so that you and I could be truly humble. I want to see this in three different phases in our passage this morning. First, we're going to see that Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's servants in chapter 40. Then he's going to interpret Pharaoh's dreams in chapter 41, verses 1 through 36. And at the end of that, Joseph is going to go about this metamorphosis, this exaltation that will mirror the exaltation of Christ. And so we want to dig in this morning. But first, before we start, before we dig into our passage, I'm going to stop We want to pray that God would open our eyes, unstop our ears so that we could hear this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now, we ask that you would allow our eyes to see your glory. We ask that our ears could hear the words that you speak to us. And we ask that you would bring about the change of life and heart and mind that you require of us this morning. And that all of this would be to your eternal glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This morning we have some 80 verses. So what I'm going to do is a little bit different than what we normally do, and I'll be summarizing large portions of the text. But you can go back. I'll highlight certain verses that will say certain things, and hopefully we're true to the nature of our passage. Let's start in Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 23, where Joseph, Joseph, Joseph is going to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh's servants. In verses 1 through 4, we start off and Pharaoh's servants come to jail. We left off with Joseph. Joseph had been kind of given favor in the prison at the end of chapter 39. And what happens then in verses 1 through 4 is that these two high-profile people kind of come into Joseph's presence, right? And so, in chapter 40, 1 through 4, these two, they commit an offense. It's the same word as the word sinned. And so, literally, they have sinned against Pharaoh. Pharaoh being their God, as it were, they have sinned against him. And these are two very powerful guys. The cupbearer is not just the guy that tastes the wine before Pharaoh does. This is actually an advisor to him. Uh, The baker had direct contact with Pharaoh. So, these are like important, high-profile people. And so, Joseph is attending to these two high-profile profile prisoners as we see in verse 4. Well, read with me in verse 8 that Joseph interprets their dreams in verses 5 through 19. Well, verse 5 says this, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. See, Joseph in the midst of his down and outness, right? In the midst of being thrown into prison, being falsely accused, being betrayed by his brothers, is now setting his eyes on the needs of these two individuals. It's emphasized in verses six and seven. He sees, he's attuned to their needs. In verse six, it says that he saw that they were troubled and that their faces were downcast in verse seven. Verse eight tells us that he's not just attuned to their needs, he's attuned to God's power in interpreting dreams. So Joseph affirms God's ability to help. Do not interpretations belong to God? And notice that Joseph's confidence here doesn't rest in himself. Hey, surely I can interpret uh, those dreams for you. I know how to do this. It's interpretations of dreams belong to God. And so Joseph is going to act as an extension of God's goodness to these two individuals. And what happens in verses 9 through 15 is that Joseph hears and interprets these dreams. So the cupbearer uh, tells the dream to Joseph in verses 9 through 11. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were uh, three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Uh, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. It sounds like this guy has a, a work on the mind, right? You ever get so involved in your work, you're dreaming about your work? Well, it sounds like he's dreaming about this, but it actually has specific meaning and bearing for this individual's life. And so Joseph interprets it. He explains it. Verses 12 through 13, he says, your head will be lifted up. These three branches are three days, and in three days, the cupbearer's head will be lifted up, and he will be placing uh, the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Basically, he spells out that the cupbearer will be restored to his position. It's 
all is well for this cupbearer. Well, the following in verses 14 and 15, Joseph beseeches the cupbearer to remember him, right? Uh, In verse 15, he says, uh, for indeed, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into prison. So he recounts his story, and in verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, And so Joseph is pleading, remember me, remember me when when these things go well for you and you're restored to your position, remember me and mention me to Pharaoh so I'm not stuck here any longer. What happens then is the baker gets wind that Joseph's handing out positive interpretations of dreams, right? And so he wants his turn. In verse 16 and 17, we see uh, the baker's dream. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. Obvious place for cake baskets, right? And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Weird dream. Joseph explains his dream in verses 18 and through 19. And he tells him that his head will also be lifted up, but not in such a positive way. That is, he's going to be hanged. His neck is going to be stretched. The birds will eat his flesh. See, all this highlights that Joseph's not messing around. He's not just doling out positive spins on negative situations. He's actually being faithful to what God has revealed to him. It highlights the genuineness of Joseph's interpretations. In fact, verses 20 through 23 are going to tell us exactly what happens. And so read with me there in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Listen to this. Yet... The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. See, Pharaoh's birthday provides opportunity for these two servants to be brought out of prison. And verse 22 highlights the meaning. All things happened as Joseph had interpreted them, right? Verse 23 highlights this kind of forgottenness. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So Joseph stays in his pit Joseph has has been thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused, but now his long dissension into obscurity is now capped by this. He has been forgotten. See, 41.1, the very next verse after this, will tell us that he'll remain in this prison for another two years. But chapter 41 is also the mark of a change for Joseph opportunity comes to Joseph, not because of Joseph's skill, but because of God's faithfulness to Joseph. See, it's here that we see Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams in verses 1 through 36 of chapter 41. See, what happens is that Pharaoh has this dream, and it's described for us in verses 1 through 8. Uh, we get this kind of objective view of Pharaoh's dream. It, it's not spun through any storytelling. It's a, kind of a narrator is stepping in and telling us, and here's what it records for us. The first dream involves cows. It sounds like a Miami County dream, right? It involves cows. Pharaoh is standing by the Nile River, and seven cows arise out of the water, and they are, quote, plump and attractive, 
But then seven ugly and thin cows come up out of the Nile, and these cows, these thin, disgusting-looking cows, decide they're going to eat the other cows, and so they consume the totality of these other fat, plump cows. Pharaoh wakes up, falls back to sleep, has a second dream involving grain. One stalk, seven heads of grain appear plump and good, then arose seven thin ears, blighted by the east wind. And so the thin ears eat up the good ears. What happens then in verse 40, or chapter 41, verse 8, is that Pharaoh cannot find anyone to interpret this dream. And that's kind of a big deal because they had this whole class of people that were actually given to interpret dreams. Uh, so Pharaoh's considered himself a god. It's kind of an embarrassment if he has this dream that cannot be interpreted. So there's some kind of communication from beyond to him. He cannot interpret it. And verse 8 is kind of this, uh, this, this uh, kind of uh, anxious moment for Pharaoh, if that makes any sense. Kind of anxious, like I was trying to find the word just then, right? And so all the magicians of Egypt uh, come together, but they could not interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so what happens then is it kind of spikes the cupbearer's memory in verses 9 through 13. And so finally, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Oh yeah, I know a guy who interprets dreams. Verse 9 says that the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. I remember the time when you threw me in prison. I remember that time that in that moment, God had sent someone to interpret our dreams, and they came true. And verse 13 acts as a summary. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. And so what happens then is Joseph is brought. He's hauled out of prison. He's brought into the presence of Pharaoh in verses 14 through 36. And let's look at verse 14 and see what happens there. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Pharaoh's saying to Joseph, you're the guy, right? I've heard that all I have to do is tell you the dream and you can be the one to interpret it. Well, look at Joseph's response in verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. See, Joseph gets cleaned up. He gets a clean shave, a, a fresh set of clothes, and he's ushered into the presence of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh starts dealing with him, and, and Joseph is faithful to give God the credit. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. But once again, Joseph's confidence is not in his own ability, but it's once again in the God who interprets dreams. And so Pharaoh tells his dream to Joseph in verses 17 through 24, right? We've got cows, we've got heads of grain. It's weird. But notice here, Pharaoh's telling the story. And as Pharaoh's telling the story of his dreams, he gives a couple embellishments. In verse 19, he says, um, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. Or in verse 21, but when they'd eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. See, Pharaoh's adding these embellishments that's revealing the state of his heart that he's anxious about this dream that he cannot interpret. So Joseph interprets the dreams for him in verses 25 through 36. Read with me there in verse 25. 
Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Therefore, or there uh, will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and send him, or set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven years or the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. See, what happens first in 25 through 32 is that Joseph just interprets this dream. And we know this comes from God, that God is giving him the ability to see this. Uh, Gordon Wenham kind of highlights four different things that are, are cited in this. That first, both dreams announce the same thing. Verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Uh, the cows and ears represent a period of seven years. That's the second thing. Third, that there's seven years of famine will follow seven years of plenty, like we see in verses 29 through 31. And then finally, uh, the double dream means it's going to happen quickly and it's going to happen. Uh, Verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. And so what happens then is is Joseph hears his dream and he interprets his dream, but he doesn't just stop there. Joseph kind of seizes the moment in verses 33 through 36. He submits a plan to Pharaoh. He says in verse 33, now Pharaoh, let's, uh, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and, man and set him over the land of Egypt. It's almost like, hmm, who could that be? Who could do such a job as this? I don't know, maybe me. We might think that Joseph's being humble here, that he's, uh, he is being humble. Forgive me, that was the wrong term. But he's, he's kind of being um, self-effacing. And he's saying, oh, let him find a man. I'm not going to promote myself, but surely he is. Remember, this is the same guy that looked at the cupbearer and said, remember me. Remember me in front of Pharaoh. Bring me up out of this pit. Bring me up out of this place. And now he's throwing his hat into the ring, and he lays out a plan for the entirety of the nation. Look at the detail that is involved in this plan. Some of you are detail people. I am not. He suggests oversight at a local level. He suggests a quantity to be reserved. He suggests where the food should be kept. And he saves his knockout punch for last, like he's making a presentation. In verse 36, he closes his argument. He says, so that the land may not perish through famine. See, notice Joseph hasn't eliminated Pharaoh's fears, but by God's favor, Joseph has taken away the mystery of Pharaoh's dreams. And he suggested a path forward. See, the turn of events that follows this passage is, is astounding. There's few passages that I can think of in the Old Testament that kind of parallel this. Maybe the book of Esther that brings about such dramatic change quickly. 
And of course, there's the resurrection itself in the New Testament that is so massive and shifting. But Joseph's charge goes from being a favored prisoner to being a trusted vizier of Egypt. So what happens in verses 37 through 57 is that Joseph is exalted. Look at verse 37. His proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus they sent him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. See, first things first, right? God, or Pharaoh, recognizes God's spirit in Joseph. You ever read a Bible passage and you say, they're saying more than they know. This statement from the mouth of Pharaoh is actually representing more than he even knows to be true, that God's spirit is uniquely on Joseph. As we just saw in chapter 39, uh, that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And he says it in verse 37, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? But then, after that, Pharaoh gives Joseph authority over everything. Pharaoh entrusts his house to Joseph. In verse 40, he entrusts all of Egypt to Joseph. In verse 41 and 44, Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring, an extension of his, uh, Pharaoh's authority. In verse 42, he clothes him with linen robes, with a gold chain. In verse 42, remember the, the coat of many colors that he's lost? Now it's replaced. Pharaoh has... Everyone bow down to Joseph in verse 43. And finally, he gives Pharaoh or Joseph a wife. See, Joseph experiences a time of great blessing and abundance on the trail end of so many years of hardship and difficulty. And so Joseph goes through the, the pits of prison. He goes through the false accusation of Potiphar's wife. He goes through the betrayal by his brothers only to find now that this foreign man has exalted him to this place of massive privilege. So in verses 46 through 52, we see the extension of this time of abundance. The land produces and Joseph faithfully executes his plan in verses 46 through 39. In the midst of that, Joseph turned 30 years old, highlighting that his, the time between when he prophesied that his brothers would bow down to him in Genesis 37 to now has been 13 years, 13 years being in and out of slavery to various individuals, in and out of prisons. Joseph has faithfully executed the plan that he laid out to Pharaoh. He stored up all the food in the cities throughout the land, so much that verse 49 tells us that it cannot be counted. 
It's not just that. Joseph himself is fruitful. In verse 50 through 52, he has kids. And so Potiphera, the priest, daughter of the priest of On, right? Talk about writing that out every time you have to write your John Hancock, right? She bears him two children. And if we were concerned that Joseph was going to take a foreign wife, we see Joseph's continued faithfulness. He names his two children Hebrew names, not Egyptian names, Hebrew names. The first is Manasseh. It's from a Hebrew word that sounds like, sounds like the Hebrew word that means made to forget. Some moms could use that term, right, for some of their kids. They make me forget. They drive me crazy, right? He explains it in verse 51. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. It has a second son, Ephraim. And Ephraim sounds like the Hebrew word that means making fruitful. In verse 50, he explains it, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. It sounds like Joseph is brought to a pretty healthy place as God is faithful to him. Verses 53 through 57 kind of conclude this story where Joseph is executing this plan. The Egyptians come to Joseph in verses 53 through 55, and Joseph's got more than enough to be able to feed them. But it's not just the Egyptians. Remember, that's where Joseph's plan ended. It's now the nations of the earth. Look at verse 57 with me. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. See, Joseph's plan just ended with the nation of Egypt, but God's plan was to feed the entirety of the earth, the entirety of all those people who had gone through through this famine, and and now Joseph is the one who is fulfilling Genesis chapter 12. He is a blessing to the nations, and God is bringing about the promise to Abraham through the life of Joseph. So we step back from this, and we see God's handprint all over this, as it were, right? We see that God takes someone from the depths of despair to the heights of prosperity in a moment's notice because of the way that he's equipped him to interpret dreams of all things. It reminds us this morning that God is a God who exalts his servants, that our God is one who who takes the lowly and exalts them and takes the exalted and makes them low. Remember that statement from Matthew chapter 20 where uh, Jesus is telling us, he's saying, hey, remember the the Gentiles love to lord it over others, but you, if there's going to be someone who's great among you, you must first be their servant. See, we see this particularly played out in the life of Jesus Christ. See, God has exalted his son, and I want to set a very familiar passage in front of us this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where Paul is writing about humility, calling people to humility, and he's using the example of Christ. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, what 
Paul is showing us here is that Jesus came to his exaltation through humble service, that there had to be a cross before there was a crown. Jesus became a servant first. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus came and was born, birthed into obscurity. Jesus came and he so lived in contradiction to the world that they put him to death. Jesus is constantly taking on the form of a servant in the Gospels. But as Paul tells us here, that's not the end of the story. He was exalted. The Father has given to Jesus the name that is above every name. That is, that someday, before the throne of Jesus Christ, all people from all ages, from all around the world, will bow their knee. And some of us, through clenched teeth, will say, Jesus is Lord. Some of us, with loosened tongues, tongues loosened by God's grace, will shout and proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord. But all people will recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ as God has taken his suffering and made it into exaltation. See, Jesus is one who refused to match the world power for power. Rather, Jesus undid worldly powers and authorities through his subversive work at the cross. He took on suffering and shame and sinfulness. He went into a grave for three days, was raised up so that now all men, all women, everywhere for all time can declare his lordship before his throne. You realize that now? There is no spiritual power or authority that is not bound before Jesus Christ and his lordship. We're awaiting the day for that true revelation to happen, but right now, Jesus Christ is victorious. See, he did this work in the display of worldly weakness, but heavenly power. See, it reminds us this morning that in God's way of life, humility precedes greatness. Have you latched onto that? God's way of life, humility precedes greatness. Joseph is drugged through valleys of a foreign land, drugged through prison and false accusation and rejection by others, forgetting him. But he's exalted to the heights that God had foreseen for him. And the only viable explanation for this is not Joseph's skill or faithfulness or ability or anything else. It's just that God so chose to do it. Notice this. It's the interpretation of dreams that Joseph uses or leverages to find his way out of this. It's the interpretation of dreams that brought Joseph into Pharaoh's palace. It's Joseph's interpretation of dreams that, that bring Joseph out of the prison into Pharaoh's good standing. And it was not Joseph's skill that brought him out of the pit. It was God's grace to Joseph by allowing him to interpret these dreams that took him from prison to prestige. 
Joseph himself, on two different occasions, in two different contexts, acknowledges that this comes from God, right? Chapter 40, when he's in prison with these prisoners, interpreting dreams, in in verse 8, he says, do not interpretations belong to God. And yet he's the same man in Pharaoh's presence in 41, 16. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. See, here's the truth this morning. God has exalted Christ, and he promises that someday his people will also receive exaltation. 1 Peter 5 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter says here that we're, we're to humble ourselves. Isn't that the first step that he mentions here? Humble yourselves, therefore. Humility is this forgotten thing, isn't it? I was joking with my community group earlier this week that I had this great message planned, and then I realized how arrogant it was. <laughs> I had a great message on humility only to recognize how arrogant it was. See, humility is the relational state of being brought about by an adequate understanding of who Christ is and who we are. Humility is this relational state of being brought about by an adequate understanding of who Christ is and who I am. In that way, when I understand who Jesus is, high and exalted, uh, the Savior who has shed his blood for me, and I understand who I am, a, a sinner saved by grace and mercy, I recognize that I, I'm not self, I can't be self-seeking, but I should be like Christ who's self-giving. I can't be self-assertive, but I should have faith-filled confidence. It doesn't necessitate rolling over or acquiescing, but rather lovingly states the truth, sometimes quite loudly. In short, humility looks like the life of Jesus, and any question of what humility looks like should just turn to see the example of Christ. See, as we hold these two passages together, we kind of get this sense that there's a a low and a high that the scriptures speak of. Uh, Ryan, if you want to flip over to the uh, really complex diagram that we have. Uh, Philippians 2 lays out that Jesus emptied himself, and it kind of unpacks all of what that means, that he took on our nature, that he uh, served even to the point of death. But then God has brought him to this place of exaltation. God has highly exalted him. And we ourselves, we are to humble ourselves and wait for that day of exaltation that God brings to us. It won't be the same. We won't be exalted like Christ is exalted, but we're brought to our proper place in Christ. See, this morning, God is to do the exaltation as First Peter reminds us. Just take note for a second. God will exalt his faithful servants, not if, but when. We may be exalted in this lifetime or in the next. God will deliver you from your circumstance of humiliation either now or later at Christ's return. So here's my call this morning, Christians. Let's get low. Let's wrap our arms around humility. Because Jesus Christ is exalted, you and I 
have freedom to be humble. Because Jesus Christ is enthroned, you and I can take the back seat. Because Jesus Christ is, is at the center of all the spinnings of this universe, you and I don't have to be in control. Because Jesus is enthroned in heaven, our strength can look like weakness. Because Jesus is in heaven, our wisdom can look like foolishness to this world. Because Jesus Christ is in heaven, we can face hardship. I love where Tertullian says this. He says, the leg doesn't feel the chain if the mind is in heaven. Jesus Christ takes our mind off of our earthly selves and places it in spiritual things. Like Colossians 3, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Don't set your mind on the things that are on the earth. The leg doesn't feel the chain when the mind is in heaven. Here's my concern. We see the debates swirling around us, don't we? Do we see that? It seems like the world's just gone nuts. It's just gone nuts. This week I read articles that described Australia has just passed legislation that would ban any personal speech against transgenderism or or same-sex attraction. You can't pray with that individual. You can't counsel that individual in private. That would make you liable to legal action. There is legislation currently on the table in France that would limit outside donations to any religious cause, that would severely limit the rights of religious liberty in that country. Here in the United States, the Equality Act threatens the hiring practices of religious institutions. The Supreme Court just in July refused to hear a case from Calvary Chapel in Nevada that highlighted the inequity of allowing casinos to remain at 50% capacity while certain churches were limited to a per-head limitation. We have all kinds of issues pressing on us, don't we? And everything inside of us wants to just scream, stop it, You're, you're infringing upon my rights. But in response to these challenges, can I just submit that we just embrace humility Make like your Savior Christ, who in the face of false accusation, what does 1 Peter 2 say? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. To shout louder than the world is tempting, isn't it? It's tempting for us to embrace the world's pattern of self-assertion, to shout louder than the world around us for our rights, to to break out the megaphone, to just scream louder, to talk louder, to talk more, to just overwhelm with our voice. But to do so is to gloss over the example of our own Savior who in every way was equal with God but didn't cling to it, Uh, the exalted Jesus who became a servant, the eternal Lord who suffered and died. While it's tempting for us to raise our sails into the prevailing winds of self-assertion, the example of Christ tells us to go to the gallows and push at the oars. Say that this morning as one who failed this week. I was at, well, you don't need to know where I was at. You don't even really need to know what I was talking about. 
I was drawn into this discussion about politics, and I was content to spout all of my vast knowledge about the latest piece of info and all of the articles I've read, which is like two. I grumbled about this and that. At times, my sinful heart shows itself so arrogant, and it wanted to be heard. It just wanted to be heard. It, had, it felt like it had something to say. And so there I was. I was just becoming a blowhard about this issue or that. And I wish I could have just stopped and asked two questions in the midst of that interaction. If I could have just stopped and looking back, I think I could have stopped myself with these two questions. Who is Christ? And who am I? If Christ is on his throne, I don't have to know everything. If Christ is on his throne, if I'm a sinner saved by grace, I can be content to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You and I, we are called to live as those who are redeemed by God's grace, recipients of mercy. You and I are not called to be medical doctors. We are not called to be political advisors. We're not called to be any of that. You and I are called to be in Christ. That's it. Sometimes we're called to speak boldly in Christ. Sometimes we're called to refrain from using our words in Christ. Let's do just that. Let's embrace the words of Christ himself and embrace the pattern of humility. Embrace the words of Paul, I should say, in 1 Corinthians 2. I came among you knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. I pray that we might be those people who, because of the low to high dynamic that God sets in front of us, we find a way to navigate what it looks like in this life to just be humble to not be so arrogant to blow our opinions all over the earth, but instead to embrace genuine humility at the foot of the cross. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask that this morning. Lord, make us like Joseph. Allow us to embrace the sufferings that you have for us, waiting for the exaltation that you bring to us. Give us an appropriate sense of who we are before you. Father, we have violated you time and time again. You call us to be holy as you are holy, but we've violated your righteous standards. We are sinners in need of grace. But remind us this morning that there is one who pleads before your throne, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate before the Father, before your throne, even now, who speaks of his own blood on our behalf. Lord, make us content to know Christ and bring us appropriate humility in keeping with that knowledge. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.